Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. Good to see you, Nike. And as our viewers know, we are always on the lookout for amazing uh, black men who whose work may not be known that we want to highlight. And today, we actually have our first return guest, Mr. Bob Woodson. Hey, Bob, how are you? Pleased to be here again. All right. And you're not returned because we ran out of invisible men. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I accused you of. (laughs) We are we wanted you back because amongst all your incredible accomplishments, the the founder of the Woodson Center, you know, last 40 decades, uh, leading initiatives, uh, helping people in low-income communities become agents of their own uplift. I mean, all the amazing things that you've done. You, uh, you, you helped launch 1776 Unites, which we want to ask you about. But you're also now the senior editor of a brand new book that was released that in four days became the number one best-selling book on Amazon called Red, White, and Black. Very nice. And the, the subtitle, by the way, which we all want to, also want to talk to you about, Rescuing American History from Revisionists and Race Hustlers. That is, that, that is a badass title. That is a badass title. So, so, Bob, since you've been with us on the show before, typically we like to get a personal background, but you've already done that. And folks, please do listen to the first episode that we did with Bob. But Bob, maybe to start, uh, given that 1776 Unites is, has been such an important organization and voice in the last year plus. What, what is 1776 Unites and what led you to create it? Well, you know, this really dates back to my, um, my break with the civil rights movement back in the uh, mid uh, 60s. Um, that, and so this is a culmination of that, you know, as a young civil rights leader in Westchester, Pennsylvania, that's home of Baird Rustin, uh, 30 miles west of Philadelphia. Barry Rustin used to come through with King, and I met him then because they would draw the, the national press, and then it enabled us to then advance local issues. But um, I, I led demonstrations for two months outside of a pharmaceutical company, Wyatt Laboratories, and when they desegregated and agreed to hire, they hired nine black PhD chemists And when we approached these brothers and sisters to join our movement, they said they got these jobs because they were qualified, not because of the sacrifices that the people we had on the line who were janitors, factory workers, hairdressers, just ordinary folks. Um, And when this happened two or three times, I realized that I was in the wrong struggle, that many of those who sacrificed most did not benefit from the change. And that Dr. King said, what good does it do to have the right to eat in a restaurant of your choosing or to live in a neighborhood of your choice if you don't have the means to exercise that right? So I realized that just having freedom and the opportunity was insufficient 
in order to take advantage of, of freedom, that you needed preparation and you needed programs to advance people so they can improve themselves so that they can take advantage. But there was very little interest on the part of the civil rights leadership uh, in uh, 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 trying to advance the, the education and the, the preparation of low-income people so they could take advantage of it. Instead, low-income Blacks were used as the bait, and the switch occurred when the money arrived. <laughs> and so it benefited people who were college-educated, and that's when the poverty program started, and Black uh, politicians began to uh, go into elected office at the time when the country is about to release its $22 trillion in poverty programs. So a lot of the Black civil rights leaders and others went in to take over these cities and these various systems, and they were the caretakers of, of, of the expenditure of, of that money. And, and that's when I knew right away that the interests of poor Blacks were not going to be protected and advanced and so I left the civil rights movement uh, over that. And I also left it over, over the issue of forced busing for integration. I pushed hard against forced busing for integration. I supported the Atlanta Compromise, where whites would give a disproportionate number of money to strengthen black schools. Um, and so I was told that my position was consistent with the John Burke Society and the Klan. And therefore, I should uh, back off. Well, I didn't. And so as a consequence of those two uh, experiences, I left the civil rights movement and began to work on behalf of low-income people of all races. Right. So, but Bob, now, but so now connected back to present day, because it seems like this phenomena of sort of there's a, a layer of Black intelligentsia who continues to perpetuate this kind of victimhood narrative, and yet they're the ones that continue to benefit while folks in low-income communities aren't seeing the progress. It's the same phenomenon. 60 or 50 years, there has been the same approach. Nixon, President Nixon gave the National Urban League $93 million to address poverty. $93 million, that's a half billion in today's dollars. Well, well, Bob, the leadership of that organization is not poor anymore. No, and, and you should go. And I, I, I was working in the belly of the beast. I can tell you what happened to that money. Right. <laughs> so, so now, but, but link it now back to the okay, so Project what, in 1776 Unites. So when 1619 uh, was published, 2019, where the emphasis was on uh, race, and, and so there were demands for reparations and whatnot. I saw the same scheme, the same the shell game, only um, being done at a larger scale, that they are going to frame America's problem as being uh, in, in, incurably racist with the demand, as always, for reparations and a demand that white America compensate black America and, and where does the company, who demands and who controls what is done? Jesse Jackson, for instance, when we were involved in the um, 
boycott of Anheuser-Busch, and he was on the phone every uh, week with uh, demonstrators around the country. And one day he stopped calling because his son received the, uh, the Budweiser, <laughs> the largest beer distributorship in Chicago. And so there the, pr the protest ended when Jesse and his family got paid. So that was a consistent pattern. And what I'm seeing now is that we are, uh, again, we're at the same point where millions of dollars are going to Black Lives Matter. Uh, the fact that, uh, that Al Sharpton can fly in in a, in a private jet to protest for Maxine Waters from a $3 million home on a, on a, on a congressman's salary to uh, attend a protest by the head of uh, when, when the members of the Black, uh, Black Lives Matter lives in a $1.3 million mansion. So, uh, so in reality, 1619 is a continuation of that same scam that started 50 years ago, where middle elite, middle class Blacks who are, are at our universities and with these organizations supposedly um, fighting for justice for all Blacks. But in fact, they, um, they, they uh, advantage themselves at the expense of, of other Blacks. Right, and go ahead. Yeah, Bob, just on that point, I really want to get your perspective. Something that really struck me and is still a puzzling question for me. And that is, I don't know if you saw Michelle Obama she was interviewed maybe three weeks ago. They were talking about the, the George Floyd case and she got around to talking about her daughters and this deep fear she had that her daughters would, could be, I don't know, attacked, murdered, I'm not sure, but, but hurt in some way by police officers in America. I, I, please, you're, you're, I can see you're familiar with her comments. I was just outraged. I think there's blood on the hands of the Obamas because they are part of this onslaught to vilify the police. And as a consequence of vilifying the police, they are withdrawing from the areas that need them the most. And so the murder rates are dramatically increasing in direct proportion to police nullification or the Ferguson effect. And for her to say that her biggest fear is coming from the police and Kamala Harris, and so that the police have been thrown under the bus as an extension of white supremacy, because as long as those black officials can point to uh, the police as being an extension of white supremacy, it prevents people from asking why have poor blacks declined for the last 50 years in institutions run by their own people. I asked Clark Newman in my debate with him, if, if racism were the single worst culprit, then explain why black children and, and black people, poor blacks have suffered for the last five decades in, in systems run by their own people, the police chief, the, the health departments, the corrections departments, social services. In Mesa, those Mesa, they're run by middle-class blacks. The biggest income gap is not between whites and blacks, it's between blacks and blacks. Yeah. Yeah. And, if, if, and again, if race were the, were the principal culprit, why are not all blacks suffering equally? 
Yeah, in Chicago in 2020, they had the second highest number of murders in more than two decades. Nearly 800 people were killed, and you know that you know, and the an infinitesimal of that uh, amount of that is related to um, to police killings. It's it's a it's a it's a tragedy. So, but again, Bob, I want to come back to 1776 unites because you are a problem solver, right? So you're not just a talker. You wanted to say wait a minute, okay, there's this narrative out there, there's 1619, there's this history of black elites uh, pontificating about their own victimhood. Meanwhile, they benefit and the, the problems continue to perpetuate. What was 1776 Unite supposed to be as a group and a movement? Because then I want to talk to you about the book, Red, White, mm -hmm. and Black. Well, first of all, what bothers me most about the whole 1619 it really exempts blacks from any personal responsibility for their own actions. Nothing is more suffocating or more lethal than to provide people with a convenient excuse for their failure. If you say if you're cutting and shooting one another, it's not your fault. You have a right to an education, but you don't have any responsibility to study. When you separate rights from, from responsibility, it's, it's crippling to a people to, 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 to communicate this message that, that their destiny and their fate is determined by what white people do. It's disempowering. Uh, uh, and so we, that's the first thing we wanted to do. But the second thing we wanted to do is, is to uh, speak to low-income people as I've tried to do, I'm saying that you're, you will not, you're, you, you must be deliverers of yourselves. You must be agents of your own transformation and redemption. And so that's why what we wanted to do with the book is, is give them examples of, 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 of people are motivated when they are seeing victories of, 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 of victories that are possible, not injuries to be avoided. And so in our book, we wanted to say to them that what the radical left is doing is lying to them. When whites were at their worst, we were at our best. And so we're giving examples of how we built uh, colleges, universities. Uh, uh, we had our own railroad in Baltimore when a thousand blacks were fired in 16, I mean, in 19, um, 1868 for striking. They, they, they borrowed money from the burial societies in the churches and established the Chesapeake Main Dry Dock and Railroad Company and successfully operated a railroad that ran from Maine to Baltimore and even hired whites. And there are other uh, successes that we identify in our books. People who were born slaves who died millionaires and went back and purchased a plantation on which they were slaves. And so it, we think it's important not just for black children to be inspired by achieving those who achieve against the odds, but to also uh, uh, identify how we were champions on the moral battlefield as well. That in the 10 years of the depression between 1930 and 1940, when the unemployment rate for all Americans was 25%, but 40% in the black community. Our marriage rate was the highest of any other group. Elderly people could walk safely in our community without fear 
of being assaulted by their grandchildren. Well, people today have no idea that, that we were able to conduct ourselves in a responsible way in the face of oppressive circumstances. And perhaps by presenting what we did then, perhaps people will begin to ask themselves, well, if we did it under conditions that are much worse then, why can't we do it today? Bob, I, I love the railroad story. I hadn't heard that one. And I, I don't think we talked about this in September when you were first on, but I always think about so-called Negro League baseball, where you know half those teams were owned by black men. A number of them owned the stadiums. A few of them owned the rail companies that brought the teams around. And frankly, for me, it's such a wonderful case study because it shows the negative implications of integration. Because a proper integration would have been the Negro League teams and the white teams integrating as equals into what would truly be Major League Baseball. But because we didn't leverage our strengths, we didn't negotiate effectively, what was integration for us? It was, we'll give you $1,500 for Willie Mays, we'll give you $1,500 for Henry Aaron. And we were too eager as a people to accept second-class status in their stadiums and being mistreated. And even today in 2021, we celebrate that. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't mean to disrespect Jackie Robinson because he was an exceptional human being, but I don't celebrate Jackie Robinson. To me, that's the death of one of our great businesses. It really did because Branch Mickey, I, I look, as a, as a young child of 10, 11 years old, I attended Negro League games wow. <laughs> on Saturday where, where the stadiums were packed and everybody had a suit on and a tie. <laughs> and I attended two games. I saw Satchel Paige pitch his last game wow. with, with the Cincinnati Clowns because my, my aunt took me to see him. And you're right. Because the white stadiums were empty on Sunday and the black stadiums were packed on Saturday. So it was an economic decision that Branch Rickey made. It had nothing to do with pursuing justice. <laughs> You're right. When, when Jews were the, discriminated along with blacks, they, they wanted the University of Penn, but they did not leave yeshiva and abandon yeshiva. Yes, sir. They did not abandon Brandeis. Yes, sir. Jewish. They wanted Yale and Brandeis. And so they maintained, they desegregated instead of integrated. They wanted Morgan Stanley. They didn't abandon Goldman Sachs. Exactly. That's the point. And we made that, uh, you know, I, I, I went crazy back then for the same reason. I, because I said, I, I was debating Julius Chambers, who was a black Harvard uh, uh, professor, when he was head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, we debated before the New York Bar Association on the issue of integration versus, and about 80% through the debate, I said, Julius, if we had circumstance A that is integrated where there's diminished excellence and situation B that was all black but the presence of excellence, where should we send our children? He said, hey, I said, yeah. we have no problem. Wrong answer. <laughs> <laughs> and I said that if you pursue excellence the way Marva Collins did in Chicago with Eastside Academy, and she demonstrated that she could take hard to teach children and teach them, 
the byproduct will be integration. That's why some wealthy whites used to bring their children into the, uh, in Chicago to Marvis Eastside Academy because there was the presence of, uh, of competence and excellence. Excellence. See, if, if you pursue ex institutions of excellence, uh, like Jaime Escalante did out in California at the same time Marvel was doing the same. There was a young black uh, mathematician at Georgia Tech who took over a summer program that was for minority kids. And he drilled them. He set up what he called a summer camp, a boot camp for math. And he drilled these inner city kids and they began to achieve to the point where they were making A's and B's in calculus. White kids insisted on getting into his program. <laughs> <laughs> so that makes my point that if we were to pursue excellence, the byproduct of pursuit and achieving excellence will be integration. Or you not, know, or, or, or not. Hey, the whole point it doesn't. The whole point is integration for integration's sake is not the goal. Excellence, and as you say, a byproduct. Many people of all races pursue excellence, right? Right. All people uh, pursue excellence. Uh, one of my mentors, Art Fletcher, God rest his soul, who has taught me a lot about this. He said, Bob. He said this about twenty years ago. He said. Japanese Americans and white South Africans have more capital assets in the state of Texas than the, all African Americans throughout the country because they pursue economic development and, 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 uh, and entrepreneurship. And they will educate their children and send money back to their homeland while we are taking trophies for social justice. Wow. But it wasn't always that way. There was a time in every state almost, blacks had capital assets. We owned office buildings. We owned, a black owned Fisher Island. Two black women owned Hollywood. Benny Mason had property downtown Los Angeles. There were in 1880, a million black farmers formed a Negro co-op. And so it is important, and what we try to do with our book is we want to create a resource guide that will be inspirational and aspirational. I had people like Glenn Beck uh, um, and others read it and say they didn't know about these great accomplishments that we did. Yep. yep. I spoke at Talladega State and a young afterwards and a young freshman came up to me in tears. She said, Mr. Woodson, why don't our leaders tell us about these things? That's why, wow. what, you know, our next step is we need to establish and the Woodson's at a center for the study of excellence and, and resilience. It's you coming. Know, you can learn nothing from studying failure except how to fail. If Jack Dorsey can give $10 million to Abraham Kendi uh, to study anti-racism, there absolutely should be at least that amount of capital to establish the Center for Excellence and Resilience. So Nike, you were saying that there were some interesting responses to Red, White, and Black. Well, in fact, there was an article written by last week's guest, 
Mr. Riley in the Wall Street Journal. And the, the title of the article was The Soul of Black Conservatism. And of course, uh, elder brother Woodson was, was mentioned several times in the article, Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, Randy Kennedy, who is the original moderator for the Invisible Men documentary were all mentioned. But in the, in the comments, which I love to, I think we probably all love to see, particularly when it's an intelligent publication, uh, reading the comments section. And you know, one of the discussion points that I wanted to get uh, uh, Bob's uh, comment on it was there was a, a bit of a debate around the GI Bill, you know, because there was this debate of, you know, the smaller the government is, the better. And someone said, well, what about the GI Bill? You know, Thomas Sowell has said the GI Bill was the thing that got him back on track and allowed him to get a quality education. Me too. You too. Wow. So give us, well, then we know your perspective, but give us more, Bob, on, on, on the GI Bill as an example of what the government does do right. The GI Bill, uh, when it was debated in Congress, um, it was opposed by most of the higher educational institutions. They lobbied against it. Hmm. They lobbied hard against it because it said it would create an economic hobo jungle out of higher education because individual GIs weren't smart enough to make informed decisions as to what they should do. Therefore, the money should go to the universities <laughs> right. uh, instead, to professional universities who are better able to make judgments about who qualifies to partake. So that was a big debate back then. And the GI Bill only passed by a single vote in Congress. And what it did, it came to people like myself, and it, it was no strings attached you could become a priest with the money. You could become a rabbi. No, what it did, it was a huge voucher. The money went directly to the unit to, to the GI, and the GI selected. And what happened is there was a lot of there were some corrupt institutions that came along to take advantage of it. But when word passed among the GIs, the marketplace took care of that. Because as their reputations got, got, got destroyed, people stopped going there. And so the institutions that were performing well prospered, and the ones that were, were, were incompetent went by the wayside. But it was true uh, um, um, freedom to choose. Uh, people became pastors. They studied religion. There was no limits on that voucher. It didn't say you can't pursue religious education. Rabbi, people became rabbis, black Baptist preachers. The GI Bill to Right was the best government program around because people like me, I dropped out of high school at age 17 and went into the military at a time during segregation. And then when I came to myself after two years <laughs> and realized that Blacks down there that were being disrespected had no different education than I did. And so I gave the keys of my car to my roommates and I went to school for two years and got my GED and got 12 credits from the University of Miami when I couldn't step foot on the campus. Wow. Wow. That's, thank you for that history. I mean, that, Ian, think about, think about the elder here, his story, Thomas Sowell. 
did not graduate from high school, left high school early because of some family situations. And if not for, obviously, their fortitude, their commitment to excellence, but also this GI Bill, who knows? Who knows how this might have evolved? I mean, it's just incredible. But one more, one more from the, uh, the soul of black conservatism. I'm going to read you, Bob, just some commentary that someone put in the comment section. I definitely want to get your comments. So, uh, and I'm just quoting this person. The reason that Thomas Sowell and anyone else cannot convert more black Americans to the Republican Party is simple. At the core of the modern conservative movement is the belief that America is a white Christian country that should be under the domain of white Christian men, and everyone else is a second-class citizen. You know, that's, that's just ridiculous. Um, in fact, I think Tom would agree with me. I'm not interested in recruiting blacks to the Republican Party. I want them to be swing voters. Right. <laughs> Exactly. I want them to be competitive. Unpredictable, and, right. And this is important. And, and, and as an example of that, I see the maturity coming in 2018 when Governor DeSantis in Florida ran against Gillum, the black uh, candidate. He won by 32,000 votes. And that's because 100,000 low-income blacks split their vote and voted for the Republican because of his position on choice and education. Gillum brought in Oprah and Obama to campaign for him, which means 100,000 low-income black families voted against Oprah and Obama and for the Republicans, not because he was a Republican, because they were voting the interests of their families. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So it's not about uh, any silly ideological struggle. My, my political philosophy is radical pragmatism. <laughs> I'm a cardiac Christian <laughs> and a radical pragmatist. So, Bob, if, if there's always, because I see this over and over, there is a huge disconnect between black and other people who live in low-income communities. If you look at stats around you know, most black people don't want to defund the police, right? Most black people want the opportunity to choose a great school for their child, not be relegated. And yet, a lot of the messaging you see from the so-called black elite is saying, no, 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 defund the police, no more school choice, no charter schools. Why is there that disconnect? Why is there that disconnect? Again, because I'll give you an example from in 1973, we talked about this. I was sent by the Urban League to monitor the decision up in Boston about busing. When Judge Gary, remember, uh, asked the black community in Boston uh, what they wanted for their children. And there were town hall meetings all over Mattapan and, and low-income black neighborhoods. They came back and said, we want a disproportionate amount of money to be spent strengthening our neighborhood schools. But the civil rights leaders and the Yale and Harvard lawyers who were black told the judge, Gary, to hell with what the people want, bust them. None of those civil rights people had their children on those buses. Eleanor Holmes Norton, Jesse Jackson Jr., all these uh, black civil rights leaders in Washington, D.C., sent their children to Sidwell Friends at a time when they were opposing uh, vouchers for low-income people in these uh, schools in D.C. Not a single civil rights leader, even Frank Smith, the superintendent of schools, withdrew his child from public school 
at a time when he was superintendent and put them in a private uh, a school. All right, Bob, as always, as always. Well, just, well, just one more question, because again, um, red, white, and black, saving American history from revisionists and race hustlers. Why that title? Because I wanted to make it clear that we were drawing a line in the sand and not trying to sugarcoat it, this time to stop the hustle. It's time for middle-class blacks to stop the hustling of low-income blacks. I say that give me old-fashioned bigotry. Give me the old-fashioned kind that is obvious and external rather than that which pretends to be friend. There's a difference between a traitor. I think many of the people who are, or are, or who are using the conditions of all Blacks, the demographics of all Blacks, particularly low-income Blacks, as the bait and the switch occurs, as I said, when the money arrives. Tell me how giving $98 million to Black Lives Matter does any damn thing for those uh, 17 children have been killed uh, under the age of 10 since George Floyd's death. A four-year-old was killed in Dade County. Um, his name was Elijah LaFrance. At his fourth birthday party, shot to death in his, in his living room. An 11-month-old Dion Harris was shot to death, 11-month-old, in her mother's car in Syracuse. But, but there's where we ought to be investing in interventions that addresses this problem. But instead, is spending money on Al Sharpton so he can ride private jets to protest and Maxine uh, uh, Waters can live in a $3 million home. So what can we say to people, both black or white or any background, to give them the courage to say what you just said. Because my sense is most people see that. They understand that there's, there's a hypocrisy going on. There's this dichotomy between the narrative and the reality that they see every day. But people seem to be terrified to speak out loud. What, give it some words of encouragement. The words of encouragement, first of all, there are people like you all who are standing with us, but what the Woodson Center has done is we've empowered 2,500 black mothers who lost their children to urban violence. And we took out a full page ad and they said they are against defund the police. 82% of all blacks surveyed are against defunding the police. So what we need to do in order to really undermine the moral authority of these hucksters, is that we need to provide the means for the people suffering the problem, like these black mothers who speak for themselves. So, so we are going to provide, as you are participating with our, with our curriculum, we need to give more curriculum content. We need to spend, we, we're trying to raise the kind of dollars that Kendi and some of these others have so that we can do major promotions and, and provide more of a platform for black mothers to speak for themselves. 
Because the way you undermine the moral authority of a people is when the people in whose name they say they're taking these actions speak up and say they don't speak for us. We rise up. Exactly. Exactly. So we want to do videos. We want to, we're trying to raise the millions of dollars it's going to take for us to provide the platform. We, we, want to, we think millions of dollars should be raised for the Piney Wood School that we must hold up symbols of moral excellence. 110 years of teaching black children, mandatory chapel, um, uh, mandatory work. Yep. 96% of these kids from the worst fa family situations go on to college and distinguish themselves. Yep. We, we ought to be holding them up. Absolutely. You know, and I saw that the head of, uh, one of the heads of Black Lives Matter stepped down. She resigned as a result of some of the scandals she's been in and also some of the some black mothers who had children killed saying, stop making money off of my child. You notice you don't hear Michael Brown's mother and father at any of these rallies, nor do you hear the families. And they're saying you are making money off our dead children. Mm. But Ian, I, I am encouraged by the fact that I book, and you are largely responsible for that because you have been uh, on, on the cutting edge of, of joining with me and others to, to testify before school boards. To We got maybe seven requests now for us to do seminars. All right, let's do uh, them. And the very fact that this book, this book is the number one seller. They ran out of print at borders as, as well as, it means that there's a thirst for the truth. They mm. want the unvarnished truth. Yep. Well, I have just, I had just one last item and I, I wanted to know and, and if, if Bob is, is aware of what uh, the ex NBA player Kwame Brown has been doing on YouTube over the last couple of weeks. Have you, have you seen, has this hit your radar at all, Bob? No, I, I heard about it, but I haven't seen it. Um, so, and I'll be brief. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm buying your book, and I'm gonna figure out how to get it to, to Brother Brown. He's basically leading at the core, really a grassroots movement. Oh, I did hear him. Oh yeah. Oh yes. Very clear. I mean, he, he's up to two hundred and fifty thousand subscribers in literally a week and a half. And, and in fact, I, I, you know, I sent Ian a, an email. I, I think today he literally said Thomas Sowell on one of his on one of his uh, video streams just recently. And so I, I don't know if he's aware of the Woodson Center, but I'm definitely I'm going to go get another one of your books today and figure out where I can send it so that that he can he can absorb himself into into the work of the Woodson Center and and, and your colleagues. Well, also Denzel Washington, I sent him a book. Wonderful. I met the person who does Bible study with him. Ah. And uh, he said, Bob, I think he would like it. So I sent it to him and I wrote my cell number down. So, but I really think the Woodson Center wants to be the place where, where people who, who defend these values can gather. Uh, yes. What I really think that we must deracialize race and desegregate poverty. We've got to get race off the table so we can address the, the more hazardous problem, more menacing problem, and that is the, 
the, the, the slaughter of our children by other children. Yeah. The leading cause of death of urban kids is homicide among Appalachian whites is prescription drugs and among upper income families in Silicon Valley it's suicide. Our strategy is to get those mothers together. I literally am next week are going to start a process of outreach because there needs to be a transracial uh, 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 approach that unites us to address the lack of content and meaning that these kids have. If you, if you don't value your life, then you'll either take, some, you take your own or take someone else's. It's different sides of the same coin. Yeah. And so we must come together as Americans and address this much deeper problem and push the race hustlers out of the way. Let's push the race hustlers out of the way. I like it. That's that's See, and, and that, the message, that's, the, that's the title of this episode. <laughs> race hustlers out the way. <laughs> because under segregation, the, if I can paraphrase C.S. Lewis, under segregation, the locks was on the outside. Today, the locks on the inside. Mm. Mm. <laughs> All we've got to do is unlock it and open our door. Wow. Because a lot of a lot of people don't know how to live free. Well, Shelby Steele said it. Uh, a lot of people who don't know how to handle their who've been oppressed don't know how to handle their freedom. They just recreate their oppression. They, they really do, but um it's a David and Goliath fight, but I remember who won that one. There you go. <laughs> All right, Mr. Bob Woodson, so great to have you back. You are an inspiration and, and as Nike has said, a national treasure. Well, thank you so much. And um, but I, I'm just encouraged by particularly the response we're getting to the book. Yes. That the publisher is struggling to now <laughs> put out a special uh, paperback edition that will survive, I mean, I mean, last for the next two weeks before the hardback comes back. So Let's just keep pumping it. Keep pumping it. It's the book. Yes, sir. The 1776 Unites curriculum has been downloaded more than 11,000 times. Teachers in all 50 states. No, Bob, you've, you, you've launched a movement. Imagine, imagine where we would be if you had not created 1776 Unites, right? Well, we, we would all be isolated on our own complaining about it, but I, I, I hope that we can recruit more people to join us and make this uh, a campaign, a movement. All right. If you want to join the movement, go to 1776unites.com. And for all of our viewers at The Invisible Men, as always, thank you. If you do want to watch prior episodes, including the prior episode with Bob Woodson, you can go to www.invisible.men. And with that, let's close this episode. My name is Ian Rowe. I'm Nike Fazer. Thank you, Elder, as always. So appreciative. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.